Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Well, I'm doing a little better today than I was when we recorded this episode. I was very aggravated when we recorded this episode because of the content. And I hope everyone enjoys the episode. I hope everyone's doing well out there. Uh, Tim, are you aggravated? You're wearing your Tom Petty shirt, so that tells me you're maybe a bit chilled out today. How are you? Well, I'm trying to chill out, Lance. Thanks. I'm doing okay. But yeah, this episode is completely aggravating, and you'll find out why once you get through it. It is about the disappearance of Alicia Markovich from Blairsville, Pennsylvania in April of 1987. She was 15 years old, Lance, 5'2 and 120 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She has blue eyes and brown hair. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a white crop top with three stripes, red, yellow, and blue. She was wearing jeans and white sneakers. She was also carrying purple sunglasses. She is classified as an endangered, missing Caucasian female. And this case comes to us by way of private investigations for the missing. And you can find out what they're all about at investigationsforthemissing.org. Of course, Lance and I are on the board of this nonprofit that was founded by Bruce Maitland, who is missing person Brianna Maitland's father. And this is the first episode that we're going to bring you. We do have an interview with Alicia's childhood friend, Lori. And you may hear some clips from our interview with Lori in this episode, but we'll play the interview in full next week. And I've been saying this recently, and it's been really working out. Anybody with any comments, any sort of suggestions, feel free to swing on over to the YouTube channel and leave those there. We love reading them, and we also love learning new things. Uh, We get a lot of family members and a lot of friends who have commented on the particular individual that we're speaking about. So if you knew Alicia and you happen to hear it and you have some information, leave those comments there, and uh, we would love to check it out. Thanks. Absolutely. And big thanks to Kathleen Studer, who researched this episode for private investigations for the missing. So shout out to Kathleen. And we are joined by Jennifer Amell in this conversation, Lance, where we discuss Alicia's disappearance. And if you have any information, please contact the Pennsylvania State Police at 727-832-3288. And I'm really looking forward to getting together with you and Jen when we record Hidden Opinions. That is the show that we do for our subscription service on missing.supportingcast.fm. We get a little animated when we talk about our theories and our thoughts and our opinions. And this one we were really trying to hold back on the public episode and even making comments about how good it will feel to sort of let loose in the Hidden Opinions episode. So really looking forward to that. So check it out at missing.supportingcast.fm and you can use promo code missing for a free month. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. Follow us on social media at missingcsm. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to the podcast, Jennifer Amell. How are you today, Jennifer? I'm well, thank you for asking. I'm super glad to be back on Missing. Yeah, I feel like it's been a while. Yeah. It's wonderful having you back. You were away. You took a little R&R, which is completely deserved. So we missed you while you were gone. We're welcoming you back to the podcast here. And we're coming right out of the gate with... One of the most aggravating disappearances we've talked about in a while. But anyway, you doing okay? You feeling healthy? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, Took an excellent vacation. I'm glad I did too because I came back and we have to cover this disappearance. And you're right, Lance. It is super aggravating. You know, I mean, sometimes you come across those cases where you, you have an idea about what potentially could have happened, but there's just like nothing happening in terms of an investigation. And this one today is a pretty old case, right? Yeah, it is. Alicia Bernice Markovich went missing on April 26th, 1987 from Blairsville, Indiana County in Pennsylvania. It has been 35 years since April of 1987, and it was a very different world back then. There were no cell phones, and the average person didn't have a computer like we know today. And obviously social media wasn't a term or even a thing, and it wouldn't be for at least another 10 years. The president at the time was Ronald Reagan, nearing the end of his second term, dealing with the Iran-Contra hearings, if you all remember that. They were about to start in May. Yeah, and I think that April was the one-year anniversary of the Chernobyl uh, nuclear plant accident. Another fun fact, DNA had its first debut in court a year earlier in 1986, but the use in criminal forensics wasn't widely practiced as of yet. So that's something just in our field that we hear about DNA all the time and just getting a bit of history around this time is fascinating. Yeah, something that always helps me keep like that piece of forensic technology in perspective is thinking of the O.J. Simpson trials. I mean, DNA was being used by professionals and tested and stuff, but it really didn't enter the public consciousness until the OJ trial. And the number one Billboard song that week of April 1987 was Knew You Were Waiting For Me by Aretha Franklin and George Michael. And the number one movie was The Secret of My Success, starring Michael J. Fox. And Alicia was a fan of the band Bon Jovi. They were popular, and the grunge era of the 90s was still in its infancy in clubs around Seattle. And this takes you back to a period of time in the 80s, the late 80s where hair bands were big and if anyone has grown up in that time period or has siblings or friends that have grown up in that time period everything about the way we've heard Alicia was and even looking at her yearbook pictures it is she just like personified that time period I'm not saying this in any other way other than to just humanize her she was 15 years old when she disappeared and if you do again know 
people or grew up in that time period, what are you doing when you're 15? You're you're listening to music. You're hanging out with your friends. Maybe you're secretly like smoking a couple of butts behind the school or something. It's heartbreaking. And I'm just ranting about it because honestly, this reminds me of my sister because she this was her this when she this was when she grew up. This looks like it could have been one of her friends. And it's just it's totally relatable to me. Yeah, totally. I do have a sister who's 15 right now. And so this one really hit home. My gosh, that's so young. Like we kind of forget because we feel grown up when we're 15. But if you have a kid that age in your life, you know, it's so young, like they don't know about the world yet. Exactly. Absolutely. And uh, Alicia was born February 20th, 1972, so she'd be 50 years old today. She was 15 when she went missing, 5'2", 120 pounds, blue eyes, brown hair. Apparently, at the time she went missing, she was wearing a white crop top with three stripes colored red, yellow, and blue. She was wearing jeans with white sneakers and carrying purple sunglasses. And again, to me, that just opens up your eyes to that time period how she was you know how she behaved perhaps just seemed like a very typical normal 15 year old young woman and uh, ears were pierced brown hair blue eyes caucasian and she was the daughter of john markovich and marcy vitko and here's where the first bit of frustration and aggravation come into play in 1971, John married Marcy when he was 20 and she was 13. That's crazy. I mean, I know it was a different time, sort of, but it doesn't seem like that was really even common in the 80s. I mean, I wasn't alive then. Was it common, guys? Did you marry 13-year-olds? Uh, no. Is, it, is that even legal in 1971 in Pennsylvania? I don't think so. I think you would have to like get parents' consent to marry someone under the age of 18, even in 1987. And both John and Marcy grew up in a town just outside of Windber, Pennsylvania. And Marcy gave birth to their daughter, Alicia, the only child Marcy would have at 14 years old. So Marcy was so young that she stated her parents were the ones who raised Alicia. And John and Marcy divorced in 1981. And Marcy had custody of Alicia and lived in Winbur. And John moved to Blairsville, Pennsylvania, about 45 minutes away. We've come a long way in the medical field. But even today, the amount of damage that's done to a body when, they, when a person gives birth is remarkable. And in 1971, they didn't have a lot of information we have today. And that must have been terrifying for Marcy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she she doesn't, um, regardless of being able to have a child, she doesn't have a woman's body by that age. I wonder what, if there are any uh, complications with the birth. Uh, this this really calls into question uh, this John character, Marcy's ex-husband and Alicia's father. I mean, what sort of person marries a child? For real, you just said she doesn't even have a woman's body yet. He's 20 years old. What is what is going? This is all. All right, sign up for the missing subscription service, Hidden Opinions, because we'll get into this in a little bit more uh, color. Yeah, we're uh, really holding our tongues right now. If you're watching on 
YouTube perchance you might be able to pick up on it, but in audio you can't really tell how how aghast we are. There are certain things that I'm just like, I just don't accept. Like, I don't accept certain things. I'm very patient with other things. I just can't accept that a 20-year-old is is marrying a 13-year-old at all. I really don't want to hear the excuse that this was 50 years ago and things were so different back then either. I, I know, I know they were. I know how different they were to some degree, but I don't know on what planet this would have been okay. I don't even think this was acceptable in 1871. So in 1987, Alicia was a freshman at Winber High School, and she was considered a good student and had tried out for the track team. Yeah, I mean, her friends describe her as really outgoing and popular. She had a boyfriend and had a lot of friends. Um, Things seemed to be going pretty well for her during that time. Not surprisingly, there had been a bit of stress between her parents, Marcy and John. They had a court date coming to get the $100 a month child support increase to $200 a month that John was required to pay for his the child support of Alicia. So apparently, according to uh, Alicia's childhood friend, who you guys spoke to, Lori, John, her father, worked for a salt mine. I'm not sure what uh, you might have made as a salt miner back in the 80s, but apparently this $100 increase from 100 to $200 in child support would put like quite a burden on his financial situation. And in today's dollars, that is just over $500 a month. Yeah, I mean, that's a substantial amount. But like, you have a kid. Okay, so it was it was an increase of $100 in 1987. That is roughly around $250. So it was an extra $250 a month that John was going to need to pay in child support after this hearing. Yeah, I mean, you hear about this a lot in custody battles and stuff or pe- where people do have to pay child support. Like, I mean, it might put stress on your financial situation, but unfortunately you are like half responsible for this child and they need to be supported. So, I mean, get a second job, dude. And Alicia was expressing a bit of anxiety about this issue The next visit with her dad was coming up, but her mom told her to just tell him that this was an issue for adults to discuss and to leave her out of it. So it seems like Alicia was talking to her mom and saying, I'm anxious about this. Is Maybe there's something I can talk to him about. And her mom didn't want her getting involved. And as a matter of fact, tell him not to involve you because it's an issue for adults, which is kind of ironic that she's telling her 15-year-old daughter that after getting married at 13. But Well, I mean, Marcy clearly had to mature very early, and that's a very mature thing to do as a parent. I mean, speaking as a child of divorce, there are so many times where I was, like, put between my parents because they didn't want to speak to each other, or they didn't want to, like, figure things out, so you end up being, like, the go-between or the messenger or whatever, and that puts a lot of pressure on a child. So, like, good for Marcy for telling Alicia, like, hey, don't worry about this. This is between your dad and I. Yeah, it's, it's mature. And again, that child support hearing was set for Wednesday, April 29th, 1987. And Marcy describes that Alicia had a good relationship with her father. And that brings us to Sunday, April 26th, 1987. John Markovich picked Alicia up in Winbur at between 9.30 and 10 a.m. on Sunday, April 26th. And he drove her back to his house in Blairsville for a visit. 
And the distance between Winber and Blairsville is about 36 miles, which would take like almost an hour to drive. And Marcy stated that she tried to call John throughout the day to remind him that Alicia had school the next day, so to make sure he brought her back early enough, but that no one ever answered the phone at John's Blairsville house. And John stated that around 5 p.m., himself and Alicia had a disagreement about her grades, her choice of friends, and the increase in child support. And according to him, she walked out of his house as he called her to say to her that she needed to be back by 8 p.m. Now, John doesn't say which direction Alicia went when she exited the house. Uh, They were right on Dunn Avenue. So we're not sure if she went left or right, according to his story. But John has stated that he believed she was either going to a friend's house or downtown Blairsville. When we spoke with Lori, she described that area in more detail by saying that the people in the area, the neighbors, hadn't seen Alicia and the other direction she would have had to have crossed what was then and now a very busy interstate. Not by a crosswalk, not over like an overpass, but going over the, I guess, the Jersey barriers or the barriers and then crossing the actual highway. So no one ever reported being a motorist at that time saying that a young woman was crossing the street. Also, Alicia's probably smart enough to not do that. Yeah, it seems like a bizarre direction to choose. Yeah, and the trailer park was two-mile walk from his house, and then downtown Blairville is also a two-mile walk. And then you've got to cross the freeway to get to either places, which there's nowhere to really cross within those two mile distances. And, and if you look at video from back in that day, that freeway is very busy. I don't foresee nobody seeing a young girl crossing that highway. And there's no other way around. You kind of have to go over it. Yep. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts. 
true terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. John also stated that he drove around looking for Alicia at some point after she left. And according to a story in the Daily American, John finally called Marcy back at 1 a.m. and told her, Marcy, she's gone. And since then, she has never been seen again. Both Marcy and John reported Alicia missing to the Blairsville police on April 27th. So the next day, shortly thereafter, 1987, Alicia was initially classified as a runaway because of the disagreement between her and her father, even though her mother said, and her friends said, that she didn't have a history of running away at all. Uh, The Blairsville police turned the investigation over to the Pennsylvania State Police on April 28, 1987. Yeah, I'm also thinking about this um, situation at her dad's house, too. So she's not even going to his house for like a whole weekend to stay with him. She's just going for the day. Yeah, one night, a school night. Right, right. So she's not spending the night. It's just like for a brief visit and then John's supposed to bring her back home. And this is like quite far away from her hometown where she goes to high school and stuff. So the thought that John John says um, Alicia went to a friend's house, like who is she friends with in Blairsville? Did she have friends in Blairsville? Like, does she know anybody there? Like, how long had he been living there even? It's, it just seems strange. Like, where is she going to go? Yeah, great point. Uh, yeah, I don't know if she had friends in Blairsville at that point. And I am curious what kind of standards John had in regards to her grades. If they had a fight that involved her grades, what standards did he have? Because by all accounts, she was getting good grades. Yeah, right. That seems strange, too. Although, I mean, I do hear of some parents that are like, if it's not an A+, plus, it's a bad grade, you know, even if she got like a B or even an A-. minus. Yeah, I can't understand why John was apparently speaking with Alicia about the increase in child support, too. That basically has nothing to do with her, the, the finances of the parents. Right, and that like clearly delineates John and Marcy, too, because we saw how Marcy dealt with this situation she's like don't worry about it it's not your problem and then we have her father john being like talking directly to his daughter about it when like that 
that should not be a concern of hers, you know? So we really see like the lack of maturity in John here as a father, even though he is quite the elder. And at the time of the disappearance, six years after he and Marcy divorced, John did have a girlfriend who, interestingly enough, might have been living with him at the time of Alicia's disappearance. Yeah, but I don't think we have any like anecdotal reports. There's nothing in in the news saying that the girlfriend was around at the time of Alicia's disappearance. Correct. Or when she allegedly walked away from the house. Right. And apparently that woman is now John's wife currently in 2022. So, I mean, just playing the hypothetical here, if John did have more information about his daughter's disappearance, the police couldn't necessarily go to this girlfriend with any questions because they're protected um, as a, a married couple. Mm, that's a good point. And for a while, they continued to live at 32 Dunn Avenue, one of a handful of houses on the north side of the road that paralleled State Route 119, which was a four-lane divided highway running east-west. That's correct. And this is the highway that we had mentioned earlier, and it runs across the very north end of Blairsville, separating John's house from most of the town. The only way to get to downtown Blairsville walking would be to, like we said before, cross directly through the highway. So walk across Highway 119. You could walk west to Dunn and Burl Avenue, which would eventually bring you to the downtown area from the west, or walk through private property at the end of Dunn Avenue to the east and get to Lear Road, which would also eventually bring you to downtown from the east side. Sounds like a pretty involved process to get to downtown. Yeah, and again, like, how well does Alicia know this area? Not too sure. And, like, what what business did she have downtown? Like, I understand if she was angry, like, maybe there was a movie she was going to catch or, you know, go get a soda or something. I don't know. And it should be noted that there are no witness reports of seeing Alicia in Blairsville or on the Highway 119 around the time she disappeared. And no substantiated tips either. Sightings. Yeah, not for lack of them, though. Apparently there's been a lot of sightings or tips given from along the East Coast, but as you said, Lance, none of them panned out. And the weather was nice that day in Blairsville with a high of 65, and there was no breeze in the evening, and sunset was just after 8 p.m. So if John's story is true, Alicia would have been gone walking during daylight. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what it seems like. It's crazy that he waited until 1 o'clock in the morning to call her mother. I'd say after, like, 9 o'clock, I'd call the mom and be like, yeah, she walked out, we had a fight. I have no yeah. idea where she is. Probably when it gets dark, I think, if you if you haven't found her in in those few hours. Right, and he, by his own account, he said he assumed she had gone back to Winber, right? How would she have gotten there? Right. I mean, say she hitchhiked or whatever. But wouldn't your first call be to Marcy and be like, hey, did she call you? Did she come home? Is she home? Right. You wouldn't just call at 1 a.m. and say she's gone because you wouldn't know she's gone. You know she's not with you, but that's all he should know at that point. Yeah, I'd be very curious about the, the other things John said on that phone call. I mean, he could very well have opened up the call with like, hey, is Alicia with you? But that's not what Marcy said. This is an interesting nugget that develops. On May 5th, 1988, John owned a 1987 Subaru, so a relatively new vehicle, 
and it was reported to have been taken from his driveway, stolen between 1 and 6 a.m., so 1 in the morning and 6 in the morning, and later found abandoned and burned at 6.50 a.m. the same day on Lolahanna Township Route 939, about 20 minutes west of Blairsville. This could be an attempt to destroy potential evidence, or it could be somebody stealing a car that's brand new, realizing that they don't know what to do with it, and burning it uh, once they make that decision about 20 minutes later. So what was John's uh, response? Like, what did he say happened? He was the one that reported it stolen. Okay, so his story is that someone stole my car mm-hmm. and then went and burned it immediately? Someone stole my car between 1 and 6, and then it was found at 6.50. Burned. Yeah, I was trying to look up um, like how many cars are actually stolen in that area a year. I don't know if we can find that data, but I don't think there's a lot. And uh, for for his car to have been stolen right out of his driveway seems a bit unlikely to me. Were the keys in the car? Or did he still have the keys? Like, did they first have to break into his home, get the keys, steal the car, or did they hotwire the car? Like, yeah, those are all great questions. I mean, y- y- the police should should be able to tell how that car was stolen, um, unless it was just singed too badly. I know it was a long time ago, but they should have had some clues from that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and then if if it's the former. And he used this car to transport Alicia somewhere, and there is some forensic evidence in there, and he's just trying to destroy evidence. I mean, how how more blatant can you get that, like, hey, I had something to do with it? And I don't believe that this particular car, the Subaru, had a black box back then. I think that was a bit too soon for black boxes. But they should still be able to tell if it was hot-wired just by looking at it. I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to, like, bust out the... guess the steering column yeah yeah that's that's just like a crazy piece to this story i'm putting myself in like law enforcement's position investigating this disappearance i don't even know if they were investigating it because as we mentioned before they kind of believed john and that she was a runaway so maybe they weren't even looking into it but like this burned out car turns up down the road it belongs to John. He sh- his daughter is missing. Like, aren't you going to connect the two and be like, hey, we should really look at the car with a fine-tooth comb and, and see if there's anything there. A lot of what-ifs here. A lot of hidden opinions here. Well, you said that this was a really crazy part, but it gets a little bit more crazy with these letters that John received around October of 2000, which were, was about 13 years after Alicia disappeared. Right. One letter was postmarked from Bedford, New Hampshire, with a return address from that area as well, that same town. And the letter stated that Alicia had been killed and described a place where her body had been placed. Investigators went to the return address and interviewed the residents there who had no idea who Alicia Markovich was and knew nothing about that letter. Not a whole lot we can do here except speculate on where this letter came from, why that particular return address is on there, what location Alicia is supposed to be at, according to this letter, or where this letter exists. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's still in police custody. I know Lori had some interesting things to say about this letter. As supposedly they were sent to John in October of, I believe it was 2001. And the cops did go to where the postmark was on it. And they found that the person that lived there had no clue about the letters, about the case, where Blairsville was. From what I understand what the letter says, it just kind of gives where they put her, what they did to her. We don't believe that anybody but who got the letter has something to do with it. That's what our belief is. Because it's just so weird and so random. So these are just the scenarios that we, we talk about. And the police searched the area that was described in the letter, but apparently found nothing remarkable there. And the police determined the letter was a hoax. I, I believe law enforcement decided to search the area again and had plans to do so, but this never came to fruition. Is that right? I believe that's what Lori told us. Yeah, they did talk about that in the paper that they did search this area, but they were supposed to go back when winter ended and the the police never went back. Yeah, I wonder if it was a very large uh, like swath of land or if the letter was a little vague or if it was remote or rural or what the terrain was like because you know even if you're searching a mile radius if it's woods if it's hilly it's I mean really easy to miss something in an area like that okay so if the law enforcement determined that this letter was a hoax why is somebody performing this hoax from a town that's like nine hours driving distance away Yeah, I mean, if you're, A, trying to frame someone or you're trying to throw off the scent from where you might actually live. When we spoke to Lori, she did say something to the effect of John had familial connections around that area. She wasn't specific by saying in that town, but she said there was family that he might have been visiting in that area. Yeah, we we did a little bit of research into that one, though. It actually... We don't feel it's that random at all. Oh, go on. They could have been up in that area visiting family. Okay, so did it track back to an actual address and an actual person? No, it's just the area. You know, it's just within a few half hours, an hour to two hours from where the visitation could have took place with, with certain with family members of his. Yeah, well, apparently it wasn't just a letter about Alicia sent to John. There was several other letters. Is that right? Apparently, on Web Sleuths, there's a post that there were actually several letters sent from a three-square-mile area of New Hampshire to the families of three missing girls, one of which is the one we were discussing about Alicia. And all of the letters state that the missing girl is deceased and her body could be found near a body of water. So this starting to make it seem like these are letters from a psychic or something like that, or someone who's some civilian who believes they're trying to help. Right. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. So these other missing person cases, um, one of them is the case of Colleen Orsborne, who disappeared from Daytona Beach, Florida in 1984. She was also 15 years old. Um, uh, and then the other missing girl was Deborah Quimby, 
who was missing from Townsend, Massachusetts in 1977, and she was 13 years old. And Colleen Osborne's partial remains were located, and her death is attributed to serial killer Christopher Wilder. And Deborah Quimby has not been located. Oh, and these letters were sent between 2000 and 2010. So it wasn't all at the same exact time. There was like a like a decade in between these letters, which is, uh, you know, interesting. Who's sitting around in New Hampshire sending letters to the parents of missing girls? I don't know. Let's peek down this rabbit hole just a little bit further because uh, could it be... The killer? Uh, I guess in some of these other cases, probably not, right? Probably not in Colleen's case. Um, it's possible in Alicia's case, possible in Deborah's case as well, I'd say. But this also comes from web sleuths. These are civilians who are posting about crimes on a website, hoping to get some traction and solve them. I don't know. This could be someone just trying to help, and it comes across as very creepy. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if police ever looked into Christopher Wilder as the sender of these letters. Yeah, or the killer of of some of these other girls. Yeah, indeed. Or it could be somebody who is trying to throw off the scent in some way or mess around with law enforcement. These were sent starting in 2000. So I imagine somebody just discovering search engines, Google, in the year 2000, and typing in missing girls, unsolved missing girls, or something to that effect, and finding this information, putting Alicia in there with these other missing girls. It's a lot of work to do, but you got 10 years to do it, right? Yeah. I mean, but that's a really good point, Lance, um, that the internet had just kind of taken the world by, by storm, and people were just learning how to use search engines like that. It's pretty telling that this letter hoax or real thing, I don't know, um, happened in concordance with that like technological advancement. Because, yeah, it would be more believable, in my opinion, if it was before the age of the Internet, that you would have to have knowledge of these uh, very kind of disparate cases. Yeah, especially since one disappeared in 1977, one was in 1984, and Alicia was in 1987. So... If this person wanted to do something, if they were, in fact, the killer and they were taunting police, they can write a letter anytime. Right. However, if these letters were written by the killer, they would almost be a confession letter, right? Because as we spoke about, DNA was in the public consciousness at this time after the O.J. Simpson trial of 1996. Um, So if these letters or any of these letters were written by a killer or the killer of these or a girl, and the police got it and went there, found a body, there's a decent chance the writer of that letter could have been charged. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, perhaps the police did their due diligence with these letters and, you know, processed them appropriately. Or maybe they just wrote them off as a hoax, like, a little too soon. But do you guys know about this Christopher Wilder guy? Not too much, no. Yeah, just in a like cursory Google search on Wikipedia, he was known as the Beauty Queen Killer, which I have heard of. I had never heard of his oh, name. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was an Australian guy, came to the States, because this country is where you do your serial killing, evidently, mm-hmm. and uh, abducted and killed young girls kind of cross-country. He struck in Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Nevada, California, Washington State, and New York. He was killed in a struggle with police 
in April of 1984. So he couldn't possibly have had anything to do with Alicia's case. So I like I think the most believable thing is that this actually is a hoax and somebody was just looking up other cases. Right, unless there's only one actual letter. WebSleuth seems to have connected other letters, but if we just take this one letter that was sent to John as a possible clue, who knows? Another strange thing about this letter being sent to John in particular is that John wasn't really vocal at all in media. It was her mother, it was Marcy, who was the vocal one. Right. And, I mean, wouldn't her home address or be be listed under her mother's address? So if you, like, had abducted and killed this girl, say and you were, you know, paying attention to the news and stuff, it would be Marcy who you'd reach out to if you wanted to send the letter, not John. Unless you knew, because you were paying attention to any media coverage that this was given at the time that she was last seen with the father, if you wanted to really taunt the father, you would want to maybe do it in that particular manner. Yeah, maybe. But if you want the attention, then you would send it to the mom because there's a better chance that that's going to go to the media. Yeah, but this is like 23 years after her disappearance. Like, I don't know. Yeah, is the letter writer trying to taunt? Are they trying to help? Are they trying to confess? I'd say that's a guilty conscience. Just hoping, like, they can't believe Alicia's remains haven't been found. I'm no, like, psychologist or anything, but that makes me think that the person who harmed Alicia feels guilty in some way and wants release, wants to tell, like at least wants her remains to be recovered and can't believe that 20 years have passed and like there's no, nothing, nothing is happening. It's so cold, like so that there must be a reason why they wanted to like jumpstart the investigation again and get more attention. Yeah, I agree. It does feel more like a confession than than a taunt. Um, And I do think to Lance's point, I do think if the letter writer was trying to help that they probably would have sent it to Marcy and not to John. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Oh, Canada, a vast idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the great white North full of mystery, crime, the paranormal and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, Honor the grit of those searching for justice and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, 
wherever you're listening. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. So after 35 years, Alicia's case is considered a cold case. And by 1990, Pennsylvania State Police were treating the disappearance as a homicide. They believed that she was met with foul play on April 26th, 1987. And her father, John, is the last person known to have seen her alive. And around the 24th anniversary of her disappearance in 2011, state police announced that they were taking a new look into Alicia's case. And they started fresh and reinvestigated. But unfortunately, nothing substantial has come of it. And recently, some of Alicia's friends have joined the cause to help Marcy in keeping Alicia's name and face in the public. They are keeping the social media pages active, and in a badass move, they helped in raising funds for billboards, including one by the highway off of Dunn Avenue, where Alicia disappeared from, basically outside of John's house. Well, that must be an interesting experience for John, uh, seeing that billboard when he leaves his house. Yeah, I mean, it's either nice for him to know that people still care and are still trying to help find his daughter, or if he has more information or is guilty in any way, it must be a terrible reminder. And John hasn't been officially listed as a person of interest or a suspect in Alicia's disappearance. However, he has refused to take a polygraph, and this is not to say that this person is John, but someone who volunteered to put flyers up noticed that the flyers had been taken down. And a former law enforcement agent who's involved in the case stated that they had gotten tips, but that even after all these years, people are terrified, especially in Blairsville, to talk about it. And the reason for that is unknown. And state police has posited that Alicia may have attempted to hitchhike her way back to Winbur, and whoever picked her up may have had something to do with her disappearance. What do you make of this thing that like people don't want to talk about Alicia's disappearance? Because, I, I mean, I've heard that said a lot about a lot of communities, and then you finally get in there and t- start talking to people, and people are not afraid at all. Like, what? has to happen to give the impression that like generally people are afraid to talk about it. I think this happens in small towns um, in a lot of mysteries. I think this happens in a lot of uh, small towns where local rumors are passed around and inevitably people start talking about drug trade or human trafficking or police conspiracies and things like that if there are no answers. Well, that's not being afraid. That's like, you know, running the rumor mill. I'm thinking of um, uh, a Breeze case, and I'm thinking of Tabitha Queen's case. I mean, Tabitha, as we know, disappeared out of a small town in Louisiana, and there uh, seems to be like at least a handful of people who like think they know what happened, and they refused to talk to police. But it wasn't out of fear; it was out of like this code of silence and not sw- snitching to police. 
but like their community was really violent and stuff. So if anybody had, you know, reason to be scared, it was those people. I don't know what Blairsville residents have to be worried about this long after. Yeah. I mean, if they don't know who did it or something like that, like that's when I think these uh, rumors about mm, powerful people in town get passed around. And that's what I was talking about um, where fear kind of sets in. If, uh, if you think there's a conspiracy in town or something like that. Yeah. Inevitably it always goes to conspiracy. Yeah. And I, I, that I came across a little judgy there. I don't mean to judge the, the residents of Blairsville, Pennsylvania. Um, I totally understand if like you just don't want to get involved, you don't know, but it just is a strange choice of words to say that people are terrified or afraid. And if it's true, like, that's a huge issue. What are they terrified of? Yeah. What are they afraid of? Are they afraid of some uh, fake boogeyman that is like a law enforcement conspiracy or something like that? Or are they afraid of someone specific? And back in April, on April 26, 2022, the 35th anniversary of Alicia's disappearance, her friends and family gathered in Winbur for a night of remembrance. And Alicia's father, John, did not attend. And he's only given a couple of statements to the media and is not responsive to participating in the search for Alicia. Anyone with information on Alicia's disappearance is instructed to contact Corporal Kenneth Karras or Trooper Brian Zimmerman at the Pennsylvania State Police Department. The phone number there is 724-832-3288. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.